1: Welcome, everyone, to the Benefits Executive Roundtable. I'm Dorothy Koshu, your host, and I'm here once again with Marilyn Monahan of Monahan Law Office for part two of our legislative and regulatory update for winter 2021. Welcome back, Marilyn. Thanks very much for coming back for part two.
2: Well, thanks, Dorothy. It's a pleasure being with you here today, and I look forward to our discussion. Thank you. Let's talk about the new transparency rules and how they apply to employers and health plans. I know you did a lot of research on this, Dorothy, and wrote a detailed article on it, so why don't you do the honors and fill everyone in on it, and this time I can be the color commentator.
1: Okay, that sounds good. Thank you. For those of you that might have read my article, my, I think it was an 11 or 12-page article on transparency and coverage rules, the how it affects the health plans and employers and the new final rules. So if you want more information on this, you can certainly read my article that was published in the uh, January-February issue of the Uh, The statement for the California Association of Health Underwriters has also been picked up Um, for the February issue of California Broker and the March issue of America's Benefit Specialist. So that is going to be readily available. So I want to talk about this. It's pretty comprehensive. Uh, On October 29th, the Department of Health and Human Services, Department of Labor and Treasury jointly uh, issued proposed and final rules on the transparency and coverage rules that's going to require uh, most employer-sponsored health plans to disclose pricing and cost-sharing information up front to its plan participants and on request Uh, before services are actually provided. Now, we've been talking about transparency, and those of you that have been working with me for a long time know that I've been one of the strongest supporters of transparency um, of anyone that I know in the industry for many, many years, decades, in fact, because I think it's a good thing, because I always ask the question, why is it that we we know what we're going to pay for a home when we're buying a new home? We know what we're going to pay for a new car. We know what we're going to pay for any you know, retail good or whatever, but nobody knows what we're going to pay for health insurance until we get a, an EOB in the mail and it says, I paid my copay, but now you still have to pay this much more. Why is that? And I've always thought that was a horrible thing. So I will say that I like the fact that we're having transparency rules. Uh, I will also say, however, that the way they're doing it, I don't necessarily <laughs> agree with because I think they're kind of going overboard and I think it's going to be far too expensive. Um, but anyway, so I'm going to walk you through today because, again, as an employer you're going to be responsible for this if you're an insured fully insured employer you're not going to directly see this because your carrier is going to take care of it you might have some things to do on some notices and so forth potentially but it's not going to really directly impact you it's going to impact your carrier but what I will say to that is that don't expect it to be free because if they're having to spend a ton of money to have to be fully transparent and as I walk through this you'll see what I'm talking about Um, they're going to have to pass on some of that cost to you so just keep that in mind because they're not going to be able to afford to do it on their own Um, so this is going to be a very expensive law to implement those of you that are self-insured you're going to be very happy with me when uh, I encourage you to try to stay grandfathered for so many years and you always said why do we do that you know that sort of should we should we stay grandfathered Um, and uh, this is one of those reasons why you will probably say to me yep that was probably a good call so of course Dorothy,
2: yes can I interject yeah you mentioned uh, f- fully insured and their carriers will take care of it for them. There's a provision in the regulations that says if you're fully insured, you can rely on your carrier to do it, but you have to have it in, in a contract. Right. Um, so you're going to want to make certain that you um, have a contractual provision. And I know the carriers generally control the contracts, but that's something that you're going to want to check for to make sure that they agree to take on that responsibility so that you will be off the hook. It's more complicated if you're self-funded, but you do have that ability if you're fully insured.
1: Yeah, thank you for that. Um, Yeah, and feel free to chip in here anytime, just like I was doing with color commentary on your stuff. So feel free anytime, of course. The proposed rule was issued alongside a new final rule requiring hospitals to provide patients with information about their standard charges. That was pretty limited though. Beginning in 2021, you may have already started seeing that. Uh, But this is directed to health plans and employers. So this is is intense. Um, It's got a lot of people worried about it right now, Um, the implementation period is now through 2024, health insurers, insurance companies, third-party administrators and vendors are creating all these necessary tools. and they're trying to put this together now and figuring out how to do it because what they're all learning is that it's very tedious and very complicated I can't tell you since I wrote that article how many people have contacted me across the country because I wrote that article asking me for help on this and this is like this is not, not something I want to specialize in I gotta tell you that right now uh, I wrote the article and I'm happy to help our clients but uh, I don't want to do a lot of subcontracting work on this kind of thing to help people um, anyway so let's talk about this The final rule was effective on January 11th um, the application applies to non-grandfather group health plans and health insurance issues does not apply to HRAs and other account-based plans um, or accepted benefits included limited scope dental and vision plans. And we'll get into all of that in more detail. What it requires is participant disclosure to make available to participants and beneficiaries personalized disclosure with cost sharing liability. And it has to be available via an internet self-service tool and also by paper for those people that do not have access to computers easily and that sort of thing, because there are a lot of those people. It requires an initial list of 500 services to be available for plan years beginning on or after January 1st, 2023 and other services available for plan years beginning on or after January 1st, 2024. You can contract with an insurer or a third party to do this, and I'm sure everybody's gonna be contracting this out that can (laughs) because no one wants to do it, quite honestly. So what it is is public disclosure. You must disclose to the public your in-network rates, your historical out-of-pocket rates, and your pricing information for drugs for plan years beginning on or after uh, January 1st, 2022. That's next year. And again, as I said before, you can contract uh, certainly with an insurance company or a third party to do this. And I think a lot of even the TPAs are going to be contracting with uh, a third party because this is not something that they're going to quite honestly be able to afford to do on their own unless they team up with a lot of other entities simultaneously because um, it's going to be really exhaustive um, and I do not, I'm so glad I'm out of the TPA business because I wouldn't want to be sitting in your shoes. So right now they're just trying to figure out what the rules are so that they can figure out whether they're going to try to do it in-house or subcontract with a vendor. I'm guessing majority are going to subcontract with a vendor. I would also say that there are going to be certain software vendors out there that are going to make buck on this because, You know, that they're going to. Um, I, I wish I would have had the money. If it weren't COVID nineteen year. I wish I would have had the money to invest in some of these companies <laughs> last year. Because I got to tell you, they're gonna. They're gonna. They're going to get very rich very quick, I think, um, when they start offering this to people. Um, as And I know the, the CFOs in the room and the people that have extra money and that, that actually, oh, can I look those up now? Who can I still invest in? Well, the stock price has probably gone up from six months ago, but anyway. Um, so let's talk about this. The effective date and the final rules and the brief timelines. Um, the rules were effective 60 days after publication in the Federal Register. That's normal, uh, which is January 1st of 2021. And it's going to have a phased-in basis. Um, so it basically allows between 2022 and 2024 to get everything done so this is how it's broken down in 2022 the issuers and um, have to have planned data files that are released to the public uh, and in 2023 you have to have a website self-service tool for these 500 shoppable services available to the public at no cost by the way um, and then in 2024 everything else has to be completed so it sounds like a long phasing in period but for what has to be done that's not that much time and it requires um, that uh, for these plan years, beginning or on or after uh, one year after the finalization of the final rules. So, let me get into this and talk about what it is that you have to publish, what it is that you have to have available. You have to publish what they call machine readable files, um, and it has to be available for the individual market. Um, or their policy years and so forth beginning, as I mentioned, January 1st, 2022, and having this internet-based self-service tool um, with all the pricing information. And if you ever want to look it up online, and I have I have all these tables available, and I have all the lists of these, and I'd be happy to send them out to anybody that wants to take a look at them because I have everything printed on these regulations so far. Um, they have uh, anything available um, on or after January 1st, 2023. So they have to be able to look at this thing and say, for this service, this is how much it's going to cost so that people can go on, for example, and compare hospital A, hospital B, and hospital C and say, for my surgery on this date, I'm going to have this and this and this done. Let's say I'm an ACL reconstruction. I'm familiar with that because I had one a few years ago, uh, self-disclosure there for HIPAA purposes. so I could have actually gone on if this law were in effect gone on and I could have looked at the five, Four or five um, surgery centers in my area, and said, "Oh, this hospital is going to charge me this much for outpatient procedure. This hospital is going to charge this much, and this hospital is going to charge this much, and the surgeon is going to charge this much. And I could make my determination on, you know, where I want to go based on how much it's going to cost me. So it's uh, it's supposed to allow people to be able to shop like you do for anything else, to be able to go online and figure it out. Uh, whether or not people actually will do that, we'll see, because um, a lot of times people just say." tell me where to go and I'll go do it my insurance will pay for it um, and they don't want to spend the time but hopefully will people start doing this and if they do that the, the, the idea behind this is that if it's more transparent like anything else it brings up competition and if more people are doing it um, and they have to disclose publicly what their rates are hopefully that will drive costs down so that's the whole point of doing this the information, as I said, must be available on a public website in a way that they can understand it. There are some rules in there related to, um, you know, they have to make it simple enough for people to understand and so forth. And we'll get into all of these types of things. So they have to be able to obtain an estimate and overall understanding of the individual's out-of-pocket expenses and have the ability to shop those services and prices across the market on all for all categories. So that's what it's all about. Some other items that are included in the final rules. Is that you have to disclose in-network provider negotiated rates, historical out-of-network allowed amounts, such as usual and customary rates, and drug pricing information through three machine-readable files posted on an Internet website, allowing the public to have access to, uh, to see these and to hopefully, as I said, um, drive the prices down with with competition and full disclosure. That's the whole point of this. It also addresses the uh, HHS Medical Loss Ratio Program. A lot of you are familiar with that because sometimes you'll get a, a credit from your carrier at the end of the year or a check from your carrier and because they they have extra money left over um, so that it impacts this as well. The uh, intended outcomes include providing for consumers to determine costs prior to treatment so that people can avoid surprise billing hopefully and provide better plan choices when people can actually go out there and shop for insurance. And also they're concerned and want to review things like potential antitrust and potential collusion uh, issues and things like that. So I want to mention, because this is important later on, is the background and relationship to the ACA. And this has to do with whether or not you have to comply with the grandfathered status versus non-grandfathered status and that sort of thing. Way back when, in 2010, we all remember, uh, you might not remember the details, but I'll forever remember that March 23rd, 2010 date, uh, which to me will go down in you know, infamy uh, because we remember the date of the ACA uh, for grandfather's status. The Patient Protection and Affordable Care Act was enacted as well as the Health Care and Education Reconciliation Act of, of uh, 2010, and they were known collectively as the PPACA. Of course, today we refer to this all as the ACA. And it was amended um, to add provisions to the Public Health Services Act. It's uh, for both fully insured and self insured group health plans, and it provided provisions to ERISA and the Internal Revenue Code, um, making them applicable to group health plans. Now, under these provisions, and, and Marilyn can chip in if she wants to here, but under these provisions, um, certain reporting and disclosure requirements, you know, that could be offered in the exchanges as well as provided in the transparency in healthcare, all of these things were stated in, in these provisions. So it's important here. The reason that I'm bringing this up is because this provision, this provision, um, relates to whether or not you have to comply with this law, whether your grandfather plan, a non-grandfather plan, or grandmothered plan. Um, That's where this all comes from. It goes back to the ACA and how that was implemented. Marilyn, did you want to throw anything else in or do you want me to just continue?
2: I have nothing to add. <laughs> okay,
1: okay, good. That's that's good coming from an attorney. I'm I'm glad to hear that. Um, so let's talk about the goals and provisions in the transparency final rule. One of the most important goals, of course, is to make consumers more informed about their healthcare spending decision. And the hope is, as I said before, that it reduces potential for surprise billing. Um, one of the largest concerns is receiving a bill from an uh, an out-of-network provider when they thought they you know they were using an in-network provider. Back in the old days, we used to refer to this before the term surprise billing. We used to always call these force providers especially those in self-funded plans you know that in your plan documents we've always had provisions related to force providers what happens when you go to the right PPO provider and your work starts there and then they send your lab work out to a supposedly PPO lab but they couldn't do the work and so it ended up going to a non PPO lab and you know the employee would have to pay the difference so we put in force provider provisions that would say that's not the case the most common situations where this would occur was you know the anesthesiologists that sort of thing emergency rooms emergency room doctors maybe you went to the right emergency room but the the er doctor that was on call that night was not a contracted provider so that's when we had these situations so that's what this is supposed to address um, a lot of some of our a lot of our self-funded plans our clients are now using reference-based pricing so it's not as big of a deal now because they don't have the out-of-network network uh, a lot of them um, distinctions although some of them have rbp with ppos but again this is where this all came from and the hope again is that um, by doing this, by letting everybody know what's going on here, that you can mitigate some of those unexpected costs. So that's what we're hoping for. People will be able to shop and that they will do it, um, and hopefully that'll drive costs down. So these final rules apply to all group health plans and health insurance issuers in the group and individual market, which includes applications to employers who sponsor group health plans. So it applies to you as a plan sponsor employer, okay? Even though you're not generally you don't generally have access to the plan's pricing information right you don't do that you don't set the prices but yet you're the plan sponsor so you are required to disclose this information, assuming that you're non-grandfathered under the ACA. Uh, under the Public Health Services Act, it required non-grandfather group health plans and issuers offering non-grandfather coverage to provide coverage without cost-sharing, such as preventative services. So again, this is all tied back to the ACA, and we'll get more into this as, as we go, but uh, that's where all this background is coming from. So who are the who's exempted from this? As I said, and this is why those self-funded clients that are grandfathered and even some we have a couple of fully insured clients that are maintaining grandfathered plans as well. Um, This is where you'll be uh, happy that you made that decision I think because grandfathered health plans are exempt from this. So yay, you can breathe and say, okay, I'm gonna go take a, go get a cup of coffee now because I don't have to worry about this for the next five minutes. If you're not grandfathered, if you're non-grandfathered, then this does apply. But other exceptions include HRAs and HSA plans, accepted benefits like those dental and vision plans, um, healthcare sharing ministries, short-term, limited duration insurance, uh, and so forth. But grandfathered health plans, those with grandfathered status as of March 2010, are exempt, okay? It's important to note, however, the grandmothered plans do not have to comply. Marilyn, why don't you chip in?
2: I just wanted to mention, if you have a grandmothered plan, you probably know it. Um, A grandmothered plan is a plan that um, the Department of Health and Human Services allowed these plans to um, sort of a transition phase where they didn't have to qualify with all the ACA uh, in insurance market reforms and that they could put that off for a period of time. So um, uh, again, though, if you have a grandmothered plan, you probably know that you are a grandmothered plan Um, And in which case you do have to comply with these transparency rules.
1: So there is a distinction between grandfathered and grandmothered rules, okay? Um, So there's a disclosure element here, a disclosure notice that we need to be worried about. Um, So that means that you have to disclose to participants and beneficiaries or enrollees all this cost information in a manner that's familiar to them and that it's the best way to empower these individuals to understand their, their costs of their plan. That's what it's all about, okay? So ERISA and the Public Health Service Act um, has requirements for non-grandfathered plans and issuers, uh, notice of adverse benefit determinations and so forth. Um, all the departments felt that participants would benefit from understanding the pricing of these things. So we'll kind of get into this a little bit more. So what are the elements that have to be disclosed here? There's seven of them. Estimated cost-sharing liability, accumulated amounts, negotiated rates, out-of-network allowed amounts, a list of services and items subject to bundled payment arrangements, a notice of prerequisites, if applicable, and a disclosure notice. Now, a lot of you are thinking that are working for a TPA, and they're saying, all these things are in their EOB, and they are. So, why not just have an EOB? <laughs> well because the rules say you can't just have an EOB and because they they say that the EOB doesn't result in full transparency and that's why and that's what makes this difficult because they're, we're already giving people an EOB which gives them all seven of these um, the only thing it doesn't give us the disclosure notice there is a plain language requirement in these things so they're very specific on plain language so you have to provide a notice and all of this detail You have to create unnecessary complexity to impose significant burdens on plans and issues regarding information that is already available in plan documents. Um, So what is it that needs to be disclosed in plain language? There are several specific disclosures, including a statement that out-of-network providers may bill participants for the difference between providers billed charges and the sum of the amount collected from the group health plan, the actual charges for the covered items and services that may be different from those described in the cost-sharing estimate. For example, a simple surgery becomes much more complicated when extra stuff comes up in the middle of the surgery, right? Something like that happens. Um, And, you know, they have additional medical concerns, they had something happen, the body didn't respond the way it was supposed to, and complications occurred. So, then all of a sudden the cost estimate is out the window. So they want to address that. The statement, the estimated cost-sharing liability for a covered item or service is not a guarantee of coverage so that they want to make sure that everybody understands it's not a guarantee of coverage. Um, the disclosure notice must include information in plain language, as I said. So they created a model notice, and you can go online, and you can pull this draft model notice, particularly the TPAs, but I'm not going to recommend that you use that model notice. I mean, to me, it's kind of like the HIPAA notices when they first created the HIPAA notice, the model notice for, um, for HIPAA, and it took them many years to do so. At least this one is quick. Um, but then when they did issue it, they didn't even include a lot of their own required changes. <laughs> so this is kind of one of those situations. Um, there's a lot of information that you want to add to it. that's not included. So this is only a starting point, and I just want to tell you that. Um, this is only a, the, the model notice is only designed to be where you start. It's not where you end. So if you're in the position of a third- party administrator or something and you're actually doing this, you're going to need to talk to people and to figure out there's a lot of extra stuff that you want to add to this to make sure that you meet all of the requirements because the model notice just doesn't cover it, okay, unfortunately. But that's kind of government. <laughs> so, you know, how do you do all this disclosure? Again, by requiring that the data files be released to the public by 2022 and creating that internet website, okay, by 2023. And it's and then you have until 2024 to do all the other additional requirements. And Marilyn and I, we laugh because we like this Easy peasy, right? Um, it's not. It's totally not easy peasy. It's very complicated, and I wouldn't try this at home. I, I seriously wouldn't. Um, the website service tool again has 500 services. They're very detailed in what all the 500 services. If you want the tool, go to 93 page 93, and it'll spell it out for you. Uh, and keep in mind that this table is much more extensive than the prior hospital requirement where they only had to you know, post their standard charges for 70 uh, shoppable services as of January 1st, 2019. That's the hospital price transparency rule. So under the hospital rules, they only had to disclose five types of standard charges, the gross charge, the discounted price. So you can do that right now. It's been since January. It's available at at any hospital's website. It's supposed to be on there. The the, uh, payer-specific negotiated rate charge, the de-identified minimum negotiated charge, the de-identified maximum negotiated um, minimum and maximum uh, charges, and so forth. So these 500 services have to be on there. So it's above and beyond what the hospitals are doing. And they have to again have the information available through an internet service um, self-service tool and by you know paper form if necessary. So uh, I'm not going to get into all the different the details here because it's very it's very complicated. But the internet delivery method has to be able they have to be able to search it by you know CPT code there's several different ways that they by doing a search for the words all kinds of things there's all sorts of programming that's gonna go have, that's gonna to have to get into this stuff and it makes it very 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 difficult and they cannot they cannot use a subscription fee or any other fees to access the data it has to be delivered to the consumer absolutely free of charge but as you can imagine this is not going to be free to, to create this stuff it's gonna be ridiculously expensive to create it and you also have to if people can't get it Via an internet tool, if you have a population of employees that don't speak a lot of English and don't have access to computers readily, which some of our clients do, you can't you can't assume that they're going to use and be able to use an internet service tool, self service tool. So you have to have this and paper versions available as well, and it has to be provided no later than two business days after the request is received, which is, in my opinion, unattainable, um, difficult and burdensome at best. Here, as I said in my article. But uh, you can also limit any results of paper requests to 20 providers per request. So you don't have to necessarily do it for show me every available provider that does this in Orange County or LA County or something like that. You can limit it on the paper because otherwise you'd be printing paper forever. Um, You can also provide if they request on alternate means for disclosure such as a phone call or an email or something like that as long as it meets the same time frame uh, period so it's very complicated so let's talk about the, um, the, the difficulty for employers to meet the requirements um, and, and using outside vendors I wanted to bring Marilyn in, into this because she actually uh, was good enough to um, provide some quotes for me for my article when I was doing that and, and her opinions on some of the stuff I want to say that 56% of the nation's insured population has employer sponsored coverage so this is going to impact a lot of people. And um and again it applies to both fully insured and self-funded plans. Um but let's talk about these contracts that people can enter into for administration, but keep in mind they still have to remain liable. That's why I wanted Marilyn rather than me just a person doing the research and just spitting out this information to you guys. Marilyn, would you like to comment a little bit on the the uh the contracts and that sort of thing?
2: Yeah, I think and I and I did uh hint at this early on. Um And your contracts with both, if you're fully insured and if you're self-funded, you need to pay a little bit of attention to the contracts with your vendors. I know a lot of times employers just sign the contracts as they're given to them. But I think it behooves both the employer and the vendor to spend a little bit more time um, and looking at some of the provisions and thinking about how they might impact um, both sides of the equation in the event there's um, an error or a confusion or an omission um as i mentioned if you are fully insured um, you can enter into a written agreement with the insurance company through which the insurance company agrees to provide these services required by these regulations and if they do so and an error occurs um, it is the uh, insurer that is um, liable as opposed to the employer On the other hand, if you're self-funded, also, you can enter into the regulations, specifically say, a third-party provider to provide these services. However, if a problem occurs, you still potentially uh, remain liable for what has happened. So that places an increased focus on your vendor contracts, and you want to be very Uh, clear in your vendor contracts, um, not only with regard to these transparency requirements, but all other requirements, who is going to be providing what service and when, what your expectations are. You're going to want to look at any limitation of liability clauses, indemnification clauses, choice of law. That's where you say California law controls, Nevada law controls, Delaware law controls. Um, venue, if a dispute arises, will you be litigating it in your uh, uh, Orange County or will you be litigating it in New York? Those kinds of things. So you shouldn't be taking those um, provisions for granted. You should be reading them carefully. You can't anticipate every possible scenario that might arise in the future, but you can, um, you know, make uh, your best assessment of what uh, circumstances might arise and how you might best address them um, so that both you and your outside vendor have uh, know exactly what the rules are under which you're operating and have um, a good understanding of how to move forward
1: yeah i'm just i just want to real quickly just show you here um that again They have to have all these files and all this stuff, in-network rate files, allowed amounts, prescription drug files, all kinds of stuff that's included. We do highly suggest that uh, you think about uh, using outside vendors because it's going to be very important to do that, I think. To the extent uh, that an error or omission, according to the final rules, was due to the good faith reliance on information from another entity, the rules include a special applicability provision. Which uh, under which the extent of compliance would require a planner issuer to obtain information from a third party. The planner issuer would not fail to comply because it relied on good faith or information from another entity unless the plan or issuer knew or reasonably should have known that the information was incomplete or inaccurate so what they're doing is they're 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 finalizing their good faith safe harbor right now um, but they do have that in place so that's a good thing to keep in mind that they will have their enforcement provisions will have will include a good faith compliance provision within them whenever
2: sure. there's a good faith standard that is usually a good sign that you should keep a good paper trail mm-hmm and again, I would go back to contracting. Um, so make sure that um, you you show that you, you, know, you made an effort, you were aware of the rules, you made an effort to comply with the rules and um, as opposed to just thumbing your nose at them, which none of you would do. <laughs> um, but uh, you want to be able to establish a, a paper trail because as I always tell people, regulators are human beings. And if they come in and you show, look what I did, look at all the steps that I took to try to make certain that I was following these new sets of very complicated rules. Um, that's going to carry some weight
1: with them. Yeah, it it really will. Um, And they're usually more lenient in the first couple years anyway, generally speaking. I do want to say that if you're interested in this, take a look at some of these tables that are in the rules and they talk about the first-year average of of, of cost uh, to do this. It's ridiculous. Um, Again, because of these reasons, I don't expect a lot of people to want to jump into this and say, I'm going to provide this. A lot of people will be contracting that out. Um, So, Marilyn, why don't we just talk a little bit about transparency and then we'll just jump into the ACA real quick.
2: So, um, in addition to those cost transparency rules, there have been some other cost transparency rules that have been kicking around for a while and these have to do with uh, hospitals and um, these were controversial. Hospitals challenged some of these in court. uh, The last I heard, they lost. Um, but, for example, um, one requirement is, as we sit here today, hospitals are required each year to post what we call their charge master, their list of charges, so their list of standard charges. So you could go onto a hospital's website, Cedar sinai USC, UCLA, whatever, and they should have their charges for standard services recorded there. Um, That that rule was criticized a little bit because people didn't always know what a standard charge was, or um, it's not always the charge that they actually, you end up paying. So they came around and they issued another set of rules that said that hospitals had to uh, provide um, information on 300 shoppable services, Uh, basically a service that can be uh, scheduled in advance. And this is the one that I think they recently lost on. So, um, more and more information is out there under various sets of rules for those employees who uh, want to um, shop around and make the most cost effective choice. Yeah, so let's just jump into the ACA. So these deadlines are basically upon us. So this is uh, if you are an applicable large employer or if you are a small employer who self-funds um, an applicable large employer is anyone with 50 or more employees. There's a formula for calculating your full-time and part-time employees to find out if you meet that number. Um, you have to file the forms 1094 and 1095 with the IRS each year. You also have to furnish the 1095 C's, or if you're self-funded and small, the 1095 B's, to employees. The standard deadline is January 31, the same day your W-2's are due. However, the IRS announced that all employers will get an extension of time until March 2 to mail out those 1095 C's to employees. However, no further extensions will be granted. When do you have to file the forms? If you're filing on paper, you have until March 1. If you're filing electronically, you have until March 31. And you can request a short extension of time um, for the filing deadlines if you need that extra time.
1: Okay, let's talk about them. Yeah, let's talk about the California mandate because that's that's relatively new. It's the first year people will actually be having to file for the California stuff.
2: Yes, so this is very important. So after Congress reduced the ACA's minimum essential coverage penalty um, for individuals down to zero, some states stepped in and they passed their own individual coverage mandate, which included a state level penalty. California was one of those states and the bill that passed it was SB 78. So beginning January 1, 2020, most Californians unless an exemption applied had to have health insurance or they're going to have to pay a penalty when they file their form 2020 form 540 with this franchise tax board because the franchise tax board needs to know who was actually covered and who wasn't in order to implement this tax this penalty they need to get the 1094 and 1095 forms so here's what the state law now requires it requires plans to file the 1094 and the 1095 forms with the Franchise Tax Board as well as with the IRS. The deadline for filing is March 31, 2021, whether you're filing on paper or electronically. Like the IRS, if you file 250 or more forms, you have to file electronically. So you're sitting there thinking, what does this mean for me? If you are fully insured and your carrier files the 1094 and 1095 B series forms, you don't have any additional work to do. With regard to the Franchise Tax Board, Um, they will accept the carrier's forms and they will not require the employer to file their forms, but you should confirm with your carrier that they are filing the forms on your behalf or that they are filing the forms. If you are self-funded, there is no carrier to file the B-Series forms, so you have to file your C-Series forms with the Franchise Tax Board by those deadlines. They may, by the way, give us a couple of extra months to meet those filing requirements. Here's another twist. Um, The Franchise Tax Board rules also require employers to distribute the Forms 1095 to employees, just like the IRS rules do. The deadline to distribute those forms under the statute is January 31. This year it moves to February 1 because January 31 falls on a weekend. The Franchise Tax Board does not believe that it has the statutory authority to grant the automatic extension to March 2 that the IRS granted employers. So that means by Franchise Tax Board rules, these forms have to go out February 1. However, they won't penalize you if you don't get them out on time. So where this bottom line is, if you're fully insured, you need to get these forms out to your employees and you need uh, to make certain that your carrier files with the Franchise Tax Board. If you're self-funded, you need to get these forms out to your employees and you need to file these forms with the Franchise Tax Board. And it is, is um, the filing requirement, the electronic filing requirement is, it's not like filing your TurboTax tax return. You do have to register in advance. You do have to set up the systems. There, It is some complexity involved. So don't wait for, to, until noon on March 31 to get it done. Yeah, for sure. Where I think <laughs> this is going to be a little tricky is for out of state employers who have just a couple of employees in California and may forget to file for them. They have to meet the requirements too. Um, Most of you, I think, are California-based. So I did want to remind you that there, as I said at the outset, there are several other states that have passed an individual coverage mandate. Um, District of Columbia, Massachusetts, New Jersey, Rhode Island, and Vermont. I'll just let you know, if you had employees in any of these states except Vermont, you would have to meet certain furnishing and filing requirements in those states for those individuals. Okay, now with respect to the 1094 and 1095 forms, the question I get every year is, are there any changes to the forms? There is one change to the form that will affect all employees, all employers, and that is that the plan start month is now required. It used to be voluntary, now it's required. The only other changes to the 1095Cs that you'll see, and they look very different, and there are a whole bunch of new indicator codes um, that they have created. But all of those additional changes only apply to employers with individual coverage health reimbursement arrangements, or ICHRAs. I have yet to find an employer who has set one of these up, and I think that is the general experience. So, if you have an ICHRA, um, the forms have been adapted to meet your needs. Um, if you don't have an ICHRA, you the other changes won't affect you. So, I added the blue arrows here. The one on the right shows the plan start month. That's what everyone else um, has. To, that's what everyone has to fill out. The plan start month. Let's say you have a calendar year plan. Um, and your plan year starts on January 1 and goes to December 31. The plan start month will be 01. Let's say your plan start month is April 1, the plan start month will be 04. So all employers have to fill that out. The other two arrows um, show new categories that didn't exist on last year's 1095Cs. Those only apply if you have an ICHRA. You'll also know that, note that part three, that used to be on the first page of the 1095C is missing from this screenshot. That is because they have moved it to page three of the form. So that's the area that self-funded employers have to fill out. You still have to do it, it's just on a different page of the form.
1: Okay, we're gonna do this very quickly because uh, we're running out of time here. Okay. There were some new grandfathered health plan rules that came out. Um, and uh, that's just very recent. Um, We're gonna just focus on what the most important provisions are. Do you wanna go ahead? I can
2: can say this very quickly. So there's two new rules with regard to grandfathered health plans. Um, As you probably know, if you've got a grandfathered health plan and you wanna maintain grandfather status, there are limits on the type of changes you can make to plan terms without losing grandfathered status. They've passed some regulations which ease those up a bit. The first one has to do with high deductible health plans. So if you increase your deductible to uh, reflect cost of uh, living changes in high deductible health plans, at some point in the future, um, you might lose grandfather status. So if you have a high deductible health plan, every year the IRS announces new limits on what the high deductible has to be based on cost of living adjustments. At some point in the future, they anticipate that those cost of living adjustments, if a, if a grandfather plan tries to meet them, um, they will, in effect, lose their grandfather status. The IRS doesn't want that to happen, so they passed a new rule that says if you adjust your high deductible to satisfy the high deductible health plan limits, you won't lose grandfather status. That's basically it. The next one has to do with fixed amount cost sharing and i think this is this is
1: this is the one that most people would be most interested i think okay
2: so um if you want to increase for example a copay under your plan and not lose um grandfather status there was a formula that you could use based on a maximum percentage increase that's a defined term under the rules and um you ran the numbers you ran the potential increase through this formula using the maximum percentage increase and if it didn't exceed certain amounts you could make the change and not lose grandfather status if it increased certain amounts you would either couldn't make the change or you'd lose grandfather status the maximum percentage increase under existing rules is tied to the CPIU. and what they decided was that that was too limiting because the CPIU was based on not only group health plans, but also individual plans, Medicare limits, and other things that really don't aren't tied directly to group health plan costs. So they decided that there was another um, factor that was a better uh, predictor, if you will, of what group health plan costs were. So what they've said now under this new rule is that Starting this summer, June 15, I think it is, June 15, you can use the greater of the existing formula or the new formula, and if, it's, and if it uh, satisfies the greater of either of those formulas, you can make the change in your copay and not lose grandfather status. Bottom line is, if after June 15, you want to change your copay, you have another uh, methodology for calculating it that yes. might work
1: for you. So we've got some time on this. Okay, well, we, we're going to just blow through this new other federal legislation <laughs> real quickly here, because it's just real simple anyway. There's, um, Let's just talk about these in like 30 seconds each. Marilyn, why don't you go ahead?
2: Okay, self-funded health plans uh, were previously required to pay a PCORI fee every year on July 31. Uh, that was scheduled to expire under the Affordable Care Act. They passed a bill a year ago uh, reinstating it, so for the, if you're self-funded for the next 10 years, you're going to have to pay a PCORI fee by filing the IRS Form 720 every July 31st. Um, I mentioned ICHRAs. Um, almost no one has them, uh, but if you do have one, you might be interested to know that they issued some uh, new rules on um, affordability and non-discrimination rules and how they might apply in this uh, to an ICHRA um also the supreme court held forth on a case involving a state's effort to control pbm costs and allowed it to go forward um, allowed the state to um, uh, to uh, get involved in that process held that it wasn't uh, preempted by erisa so um, that could mean that more states might try to dip their toe into the um, management of prices under pbm contracts like california like California. Um, And uh, also to let you know, there is a proposed rule to change up the HIPAA privacy rules um, uh, and that's just proposed at this stage. So you can put it on the back burner for the time being.
1: (laughs) Let's just go over these. We're not going to go through all of these limits because we don't have time, but there are new plan limits for 2021 for HSAs, for catch-up contributions, for high deductible health plans, you know, deductibles, um, out-of-pocket expenses, uh, and ACA out-of-pocket limits. So we have them listed here for you. Uh, You can review those. Again, additional limits for FSAs, Dependent care accounts, transportation fringe benefits, adopting assistance, and so forth. So all the new limits are here for you. You can go back and check those if you need to. Let's real quickly go through the uh, the new California laws because I think a lot of people want to hear about this. But we have limited time, so we'll get through them as many of them as we can.
2: Okay, don't forget that as of January 1 of 2020, California passed a law that requires you to provide two notices. If you offer a flexible spending account, that's a health FSA, a DCAP, or an adoption assistant program. You have to provide employees with two notices, letting them know of their deadline to refund. Draw funds before the end of the year. Obviously this is before the CAA and the new carryover provisions, but they were concerned that employees were forfeiting funds um, to their employers and they wanted to make sure they had notice of what the deadline is so they could get their claims in on time. CalSavers, Savers, a reminder to all employers of a particular size um, that uh, under California law, you must either offer your employees a qualified pension or profit sharing plan or register with CalSavers. The first deadline was pushed back a little bit because of the pandemic, but as of June 30, 2020, all employers with five or more employees must qualify. If you do have to register with CalSavers, there's no cost to you as an employer, but there is administrative work to be done. You have to send them a census, um, you have to update the census when employees drop on and drop off, and you have to transmit payroll contributions to CalSavers.
1: And by the way, I did write an article on this a few months back too, so, or la- last year. So if anybody wants that more information on this, I do have an article I can send you and, we can, and I can help you update it uh, with additional information with just the new extensions
2: paid family leave this is the state's wage replacement program um and you pay into this through payroll Um, there have been some changes in it Uh, for example as of last july the uh, amount of paid leave benefits extended from six to eight weeks and as of this january the uh, grounds for taking paid leave um, are now include in addition to the existing grounds taking leave for a qualifying exigency. This arises when um, you have a family member who's in the armed services and is deploying, for example. Don't uh, forget to update your posters and brochures on paid family leave to make certain that they reflect the new changes in the law. A reminder that the harassment training requirement is still with us. Um, The expansion of the harassment training requirement was delayed for a while but um, it uh, the deadline for compliance was january 1 2021 and a reminder that there are free training videos available from the department of fair employment and housing for both supervisory and non-supervisory employees as long as some faqs explaining what you're obligated to do to comply
1: and i just want to mention that i just uh, last week interviewed uh, uh, jacqueline thorpe Uh, who does uh, this and other types of training. And she, I asked her the blunt question about, do you think most employers complied by and finished this by January 1st, 21? And she said, no, this is very (laughs) emphatically. No, most did not. So still get it done. If you haven't done it yet, get it done. Um, And usually they've, they've been having people contacting them because uh, they had an issue come up. So that's, oh, I have to do this now. It's serious. So if you haven't done it, you can still, you still need to do it. Um, Don't, don't, don't put it off too much. I mean, because COVID, they were kind of being a little bit, I think, being a little bit more lenient. But you need to get that done as soon as you can. Sorry. Go ahead.
2: <laughs> no, that's that's a great tip. And you don't have to use the D- DFEH no, no. training programs. You can use a, a firm like Train Me Today with Jacqueline Thorpe or there's many providers out there to, to – yeah a formulated program that works best for your work.
1: I just happened to mention that because I just interviewed her for a podcast. So, <laughs> okay, let's talk about the independent contractor's law because I know that's important. And we I think we've all heard about it many times and been dealing with this for a while, but why don't you just kind of summarize it?
2: Yeah, so this all started in um, 2018 when the California Supreme Court issued the Dynamex decision. And Dynamex created a new test, the ABC test, for determining whether or not that independent contractor providing you with services is really an independent contractor or whether you should actually be treating them as your common law employee. Um, Dynamex applied the ABC test just for wage and hour purposes. The California legislature came along the next year and said, we like the ABC test and they passed AB5 which applied the ABC test not only to wage an hour, but to a whole host of other labor laws and requirements. Um, But it was full of exceptions and there was a lot of um, controversy about it. So last year, (laughs) the legislature passed AB 2257. AB 2257 removed AB five and replaced it with AB 2257. AB 2257 keeps the ABC test in place, so we still have to comply as an employer with the ABC test to determine whether or not your independent contractor is an independent contractor or a common law employee, but adds a whole bunch of exceptions, tweaks some of the existing AB5 exceptions, and adds some more. The Cal Chamber tells us that it has 109 exceptions. I took their word for it. I didn't add them up myself, but it took effect on AB2257 took effect actually last September four. Here's the bottom line for employers. If you have any independent contractors, you should consult your employment lawyer to make certain you are properly classifying that independent contractor because if they are actually a common law employee and you're not treating them like a common law employee, it can be very expensive in wage and hour claims, in workers' compensation issues, and on and on. So you need to make certain you're properly classifying all those who provide you with services. Keep in mind also we joke about the 109 exceptions, but if an exception applies, it doesn't automatically mean that that individual is in fact an independent contractor under the law. It often generally means that what you do is you have to provide a different set of factors, not the ABC test, but what we call the Borrello factors in order to determine whether or not that person really is an independent contractor. So it's a potentially complicated thing. It's very complicated. I would would also mention, once you start reclassifying workers and they start becoming common law employees instead of independent contractors, from a benefits perspective, these kinds of decisions can affect your calculation of whether you qualify as an applicable large employer, whether or not you're eligible for small group coverage, who's eligible for benefits under your plan, whether you might have to offer them coverage in order to avoid 4980H penalties and on and on. So um, there's a lot of permutations to this decision-making.
1: Yeah, so let's, let's just go on real quickly. I just, just, why don't you just go through
2: these real quick. Mandated benefits, only one mandated benefit bill passed the legislature last year. If you are self-funded, you can snooze. Um, If you're fully insured, I just want to make you aware of this. This is a mandate on insurance companies and HMOs. You as an HR professional don't have any work to do in order to implement this, but it is an important new benefit. And I think you should know about it. The carriers implement it. And what this this, uh, rewrites California's mental health parity law. There's a federal mental health parity law, but there's also a state mental health parity law. This change, SB 855, broadens California's mental health parity law to require parity for basically all conditions identified in the main psych- psychiatric manuals uh, that identify the DSM-5 um, that identify mental illnesses. It used to be California's mental health parity law was applicable to a far narrow category of mental health conditions. So, Bottom line is you and your employees are potentially um, eligible for a lot broader mental health benefits going from January 1 forward. They also passed a bill saying that pharmacists could give the uh, COVID-19 vaccine, which is good news. SB 852 charges a new California state agency or a California state agency to look for ways to get more affordable generic drugs. The workplace Cal OSHA COVID-19 regulations. This is a little out of my area. I'm a benefits lawyer, but I did want to let you know that they came out with a brand new and lengthy set of COVID-19 regulations which went into effect at the end of November. They gave you about a 10-day turnaround time. Um, It applies to most employers uh, except for places of employment with which one employee who doesn't have contact with any others That's me. Employees working from home. That's me. And employees already covered by Cal OSHA's aerosol transmission standard. Bottom line is, if you already have in place, and you should have in place, a written COVID-19 prevention program, you're probably going to have to update it in order to meet the new requirements of these Cal-OSHA regulations. There is a provision in these regulations that state that under certain circumstances, you must continue salary and benefits while a person is absent from the workplace due to COVID-19 if they are otherwise able and available to work. So it's basically a a paid leave provision, um, if the person qualifies. Uh, We don't have a lot of time to go into this. There is an extensive set of FAQs on the Cal OSHA website that they've updated to explain that salary and benefits provision in a little bit more detail. in addition to the regulations, the legislature had prior to that passed AB 685, which went into effect 1121. Again, there are some regulations explaining this, uh, but it uh, has to do with um, uh, timeframes and providing notices in the event that someone in your workplace has COVID 19 or was exposed to COVID 19. And the timeframes are short, so yeah. you need to know about yeah. them. Paid leave. Okay, uh, this one, This is the paid leave provision um, that that California's version of FFCRA, it's gone now. It's expired. So yeah. <laughs> we don't have to worry about it anymore. Okay. We do have workers' compensation. Yeah. This is, again, another um, notice provision basically. It, well, there's two parts to it. One, if someone at your workplace comes down with COVID-19, there's a presumption that it was a workplace injury. all It's uh, compensable through workers' compensation, although it is a rebuttable presumption. And there Also, is a notice requirement again with a very short turnaround time. So, you'll want to look at those FAQs. This is uh, a big change, and I do need to let everyone know about this. The California family writes out CIFRA. This is California's version of FMLA. And they've whether you are uh, have already been subject to CIFRA and you feel you're familiar with it, they've made some changes to it that you need to know about. But for some people, you may never have been subject to CIFRA before, and you are now. As of January 1, employers with five or more employees are subject to CIFRA. It used to be 50 or more. 50. Yeah. This is big. This is huge. That applied to FMLA. Yeah. Now it's employers with five or more employees are subject to CIFRA. If you're subject to CIFRA, if an employee meets the eligibility requirements you have to provide up to 12 weeks of unpaid leave for certain qualifying leaves. Yes. The benefits lawyer in me has to remind you that while someone is on a qualifying CIFRA leave, you have to maintain their group health coverage under the same terms and conditions as if they were actively at work. So the employee can be asked to pay their portion of the premium, but the employer has to pay its portion of the premium. And there's a number of bells and whistles and rules all right. pertaining to that. Right. A few other changes you need to know about, um, e- even for those employers who have previously been subject to CIFRA. Uh As you probably know, employees who otherwise meet the qualifications have worked long enough for you can take leave to, cal- to care for someone with a serious health condition. They have expanded the list of individuals for whom you can take leave if they have a serious health condition. As a reminder, under FMLA, it's the spouse, the son, the daughter, or the parent. Under CIFRA, it's the child, the parent, the grandparent, grandchild, sibling, spouse, or domestic partner. Also, the definition of child has been expanded to include the children of domestic partners, and the law no longer requires that the child be under 18 or an adult dependent.
1: That's big. That's huge. There's a lot of stuff in that. Go ahead. Uh,
2: Another big change is CIFRA has been expanded, like FMLA, to allow um, leave for a qualifying exigency related to a relative who was in the armed forces. Um, The new Parent Leave Act, which I've been talking about for the last few years, which applied uh, some leave rights to employers with between 20 and 50 employees, is effectively gone now because it's been replaced by CIFRA. So, If you are newly subject to CIFRA, or if you were previously subject to CIFRA, this is going to require you to update your handbooks, update your posters, update your leave forms. Uh, More on leaves. If uh, the state's kin care law effective January 1 allows the employee to make the choice to designate the leave as either sick leave or to care for a child. It's at the employee's discretion. AB 2992. Changes, the existing law related to being able to take time off if you're a victim of a crime. Um, there's a, an expanded set of circumstances for which you can take time off, which includes any crime or abuse that caused physical injury or mental il- injury and a threat of physical injury. Mm-hmm. Pay data reporting. If you've got 100 or more employees, this is an important one. The reports start on, are due on March 31. And basically, it requires you to provide certain demographic information about your employees, and it's enforced by the Department of Fair Employment Housing. The backstory on this is the Obama administration passed some rules requiring this. The Trump administration made it go away. California reinstated it on the state level. Uh A.B. 2143 has to do with no hire provisions. If you get into a legal dispute with one of your employees or former employees, um, you cannot put a no rehire provision in the contract saying we're never going to hire you again um, unless the employee agrees that the claim was initially filed in bad faith or the employee was found to have engaged in sexual harassment or sexual assault. Um, The deadline for filing retaliation claims has been uh, extended, and there's also an attorney's fees provision for whistleblowers. AB 3075 has to do with wage theft. What this is all about is it's trying to prevent employers who've had wage judgments against them from closing up shop, forming a new corporation, and opening up business down the street. So they've put a bunch of strictures in there to make sure that doesn't happen. AB1963 you do really need to know about. Um, that has to do with it creates certain human resources employees and supervisors of minors into mandated reporters in the case of child abuse or neglect. It also requires employers to provide training to these individuals who might be mandated reporters. Just a reminder, uh, the minimum wage went up January 1 in the state of California and in a number of cities across the state. So don't forget to update your workplace posters.
1: Well, unfortunately, that's all we have time for today. But Marilyn, thank you so much for being here with us today and for part one as well. This was really a great, very informative update on legislative and regulatory uh, information for 2021. So thank you so much for being
2: with us. It's always my pleasure. There's a lot to talk about, and I enjoy uh, working with you on these issues and keeping your audience informed. Thank you.
1: If any of our podcast listeners would like to reach out to you, how can they do that?
2: Well, they can either call me at 310-989-0993, or they can send me an email at Marilyn at MonahanLawOffice.com.
1: Thanks a lot, Marilyn. We really appreciate it for both, again, this time and last time. So thanks again.
2: Thank you, Dorothy. It's been my pleasure.
1: To everybody else out there, thank you for listening. Stay safe and stay healthy.
0: Thanks for listening. Stay tuned for compliance tips, cost containment ideas, new trends, and decision-making tools. This podcast is produced by Advanced Benefit Consulting, Anaheim, California. All views expressed are those of the host or interviewees and not necessarily those of Advanced Benefit Consulting. Information contained herein should not be construed as legal advice. We always recommend that you consult with your legal counsel as situations do vary. Ms. Koshu can be reached at 714-693-9754, extension 3. Toll free at 866-658-3835 or visit our website at advancedbenefitconsulting.com.